0: Hello, welcome back to Catalyzing Coherence. Today, I'm here with Nevin Freeman. Thanks for being on the show, Nevin.
1: Yep. Thanks for having me.
0: Nevin is a serial entrepreneur. He has, uh, he has a company at the moment called Reserve, which is a stable coin. On the path to Reserve, he started a news website initially for financial advisors, uh, a medical research company, and also a company builder called Paradigm Academy. So, You're certainly not new to entrepreneurship at all. Yep. Um, What got you interested in this current space of cryptocurrency and more specifically working on stable coins?
1: Yeah, so um, I sort of got interested and then lost interest and then got interested again, Mm -hmm. Uh, where I discovered Bitcoin in 2011 um, and was really excited about the idea that you could have a currency that was Like the way way I see it, it's like a currency that's held in place only by carrots instead of by a combination of carrots and sticks. Or if you look at fiat money, it's sort of held in place by a combination of punishments that are built into the whole government apparatus and then also economic incentives. And then here's this idea for Bitcoin where it just only uses positive economic incentives to keep the whole consensus about who has how many of something stable. Um, And... Uh, And the reason why that was interesting to me was because um, the sort of the sticks part of of currency depends on functional government apparatuses. And so if you have something that just works based on carrots, well, then maybe that could persist even if uh, uh, government institutions degrade Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of think that... It's beyond me th-
0: why you might be concerned about that these days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unstable governments? What? <laughs> right.
1: Well, no, but the thing is, like, you know, uh, it's like you, you travel to some parts of the world and the instability of government is, like, really clear. Mm-hmm. But in developed countries, even in, like, times that are sort of relatively tumultuous, there's still kind of this underlying stability, at least in the short term. And, and it's easy to kind of forget that over the span of maybe longer than one human lifetime, these big government institutions often end up degrading, um, such that even if we're in a time of relative stability, it's sort of unclear how long that will last in the overall course of history yeah. for any given government institution. And so, so it was kind of like, well, what if there was a currency that was actually kind of separate from government that didn't depend on that, mm-hmm. um, that could continue to work in the case of decline so that if you have that decline, uh, still the kind of the fundamental collaboration tool of currency persists. Um, and so, so that, that was sort of intellectually what got me interested in it. And then, you know, and then, um, it was like, well, if it's going to be the next currency for the world, I should probably buy some. So I like tried to mine some on my laptop mm-hmm. and I bought some, um, on like Mt. Gox or whatever, where you had to like, you know, put your money into Dwala mm-hmm. and then send it to Mt. <laughs> Gox or whatever. Um and I still get emails from Dwala. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, um, but I didn't, I didn't really stick with it because um, within something like a year, um, I I was thinking really actually from that investment perspective of well should I put all of my money into this? Yeah. And actually asking myself if I should put all of my money in led me to take all of my money out because I as I thought about it I concluded well with the, the supply curve of Bitcoin, it's gonna be, even even in the world where it ends up being massively adopted, it will be deflationary for so long, uh, or maybe indefinitely, I wasn't sure at the time, um, and or volatile in such a way where it seems like it wouldn't really function well as a currency. Um, and I was very focused on thinking about like, well, is this gonna replace currency? I didn't even think about the possibility that it'd be used as like a gold replacement as this sort of store value thing. And so, I thought, okay, well, this is a really cool technology, but it's not gonna work from a currency perspective. Um, so I took all my money out of it and I kind of decided, okay, you know, moving on, gonna go do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the first touch with it. And then um, last year, during the height of the ICO bubble, um, I, I started looking at the cryptocurrency space again, um, still not having faith in Bitcoin um, and studying it more from a sociological perspective um, uh, where basically I I was kind of fascinated by the way in which human consensus around what is valuable can like shift so quickly and that's kind of what a bubble is is like all of a sudden people get very excited about something and everyone wants to buy into it and then maybe that lasts a long time or maybe that goes away very quickly and it's um, especially
0: true the more removed the symbols or signifiers of value are from the actual behaviors that might be generating value or, or anchoring the the kind of representation of value to the actual behavior itself. So it's right. like if it's, if it's all this psychological game that we're playing or this Keynesian beauty contest right. or continuously speculating on, spe- on, on other layers of speculation that rest upon other layers of speculation, those can change in a dime. It's all psychology.
1: Well, and so part of the, like, so, so, yeah, so I, I was looking at the, the cryptocurrency space and kind of comparing it to other historical examples Mm -hmm. of this kind of behavior. So I went and started reading about like the first stock market in Amsterdam Mm -hmm. a long time ago and interesting a lot of the same patterns sort of emerged and I read a bit about America in the 20s um, and and then actually sort of talked to people about the behavior in the dot-com bubble and
0: which patterns are these just to yeah so the
1: interesting like idea that I came to, that I think is right. I don't know if others will think it's right. Is it basically that um, like humans are kind of looking in many cases, like many humans are looking for ways of getting rich quickly all the time. Like if you offer someone the legitimate opportunity to get rich quickly, generally people will be like, "Well, yeah, I yeah. would like that." Or and to so
0: in, in some ways to to alleviate the necessity of. Of labor that might come along with suffering right. for as long as possible exactly. as like an extension of like okay you come across a bush with a thousand berries on it exactly uh, you can't carry a thousand berries very you well try put. to eat all the all the berries
1: yeah very yeah. well put yeah and so and so that's kind of like one fundamental force but then um, and so what I think is that they're kind of uh, b- because of the fact that you have these market mechanisms where um, when people start to buy into something then there's like this feedback loop where everyone can see the price of that thing going up Mm -hmm. and then more people want to buy in because there's this opportunity to get rich quickly. You get these miniature bubbles all over, all the time. Anytime there's that sort of public market data and people can start piling onto something and see the price go up and and then jump out of it and then see the price go down and jump out. And the thing that makes the difference between those like mini bubbles that form and then burst very quickly versus something that gets really big in the way that like Bitcoin was able to, um, and and like you know and and like the stock market was able to in America in the twenties, um, is whether there's some coherent enough narrative on which the fundamental value really is there, and it's not just a speculative sort of Keynesian beauty contest, mm-hmm. where um, where you know in the case of like America in the twenties, there's this idea that like. There's this new science of management and this new mechanized means of production. And yeah, these prices are going up super fast in the stock market, but it's actually just tracking the huge amount of economic value that really is gonna be produced and these these things aren't overpriced. So, So at the time that everything was going crazy, um, I think it was actually possible to maintain the belief that things weren't overpriced yeah and that's and that's kind of and interestingly and um, have some legitimacy to that claim right yeah. right and that's the thing it has to be that it makes enough sense that you sort of can't tell whether it's right or whether it's wrong where some in some cases it just is right and the thing isn't a bubble mm-hmm. people just are rationally coming to realize that there's some huge source of value that they can invest in. Um, and sort of reap the returns of. And in other cases, it turns out that it wasn't really real. Um, and uh, but there was just a coherent enough story on which it was real. Mm-hmm. And people in the crypto space have now spent a lot of time comparing it to the dot com bubble and looking at like, well, you know, sort of immediately after the bubble burst, like these companies really didn't perform very well. But then in the long term, the value did actually come. So there's a, yep. a way in which sort of the market was right in recognizing, wow, there's this huge source of economic value if we invest our money the right way. And then they were just a little overly excited about the the, the value coming immediately. Yeah. And it turned out that it took a lot longer than people had expected.
0: Yeah, so just just one thing there. Um, so my background is a little bit more in, in kind of the evolutionary domain or the biological domain. And so I tend to think of these types of things, these types of scenarios or dynamics through the lens of uh, evolutionary systems or biological phenomena. And I'm reminded of a really interesting paper uh, or example that I, I saw. And I'm curious to hear what you think of this because okay. I think it kind of relates to this. And the example was, I think it was some Japanese biologists um, or, or maybe even like mycologists who were studying fungus, but they were applying uh, mycology or, or they were applying... Um, the, the way that fungus tends to grow in search of food to try to use it to optimize transportation networks. So they would put sources of food at these different de- destinations um, upon like a, a map of I think it was like Tokyo or something like that that was, a, was effectively made of like a substance that the, the fungus could grow through and they would um, inject the fungus, the spores into this and it would grow outwards in this large radiating pattern until it identified the sources of food or like the sources of, of what it perceived as valuable. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that happened, all of the rest of these rhizomatic like threads that it was exploring with were pruned back mm. or died, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and that only happens though, like once you actually find the, the place in this exploratory space where, where value is. Right. And then after that it's clear and you can kind of get rid of the other threads or mm-hmm. other kind of like exploratory ideas yeah but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily possible ahead of time and in yeah. the same way i think you know markets around new technologies take this path where yeah. it's it's at first it's completely unclear where the value is but as soon as you start getting those kernels of truth that you've connected with it things die pretty quickly that aren't like that
1: yeah yeah no that makes sense um and and kind of there's actually a way in which that relates to the next step in our in our path where we looked at Um, a lot of the different so so here I am like studying it trying to understand it from a human behavior perspective and that's because I Have big ideas about what what I want to do in the future and ways in which I want to impact the future of the world and so I want to understand humans because I think it all sort of comes down to Individuals and what makes them effective and groups and what causes Mm -hmm. them to collaborate the way that they do Mm -hmm. to cooperate or not cooperate Etc. And so it's a tall um, order, but a lot rests on it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then, but so then, as I was looking at all of this, um, you know, I, I was also thinking, kind of from that perspective, of well, which of these things that people are exploring and speculating on actually make sense? Um, which of them are going to be useful sources of value in the future? Mm-hmm. And um, and it kind of hit me that um, there hadn't really been uh, there hadn't really been any successful Cryptocurrency yet, um, where no one had been able to take the technology behind Bitcoin and figure out a way to implement a monetary policy on top of that um, that would pro- that would produce something that really worked as a currency, um, even during the initial like adoption phase, um, and um, and. There there had been some thought about that um, yep. put in, When in you, you say
0: currency, are you specifically leaning towards the, the idea of the means of exchange or w- which well, app, or just the entire What so, is your definition just for clarity? Yeah, that's a say, good question? Yeah,
1: so um, I'm glad you bring this up because I think that um, a true currency in practice ends up being used as Really all three of the things that people go on about. So mm-hmm. there's the, the means of exchange um, the store of value and the unit of account, kind of mm-hmm. the, the way of pricing things, where um, people talk a lot about Bitcoin as a store of value, and in, in crypto, people are interested in sort of stores of value. They're not really stores of value. They're they're sort of like increasing amounts of free value from from the individual perspective, in that they want things that go up. But <laughs> if you think about fundamentally, just a straight up store of value, it's um, that doesn't go. Down. It's something that doesn't go down. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's something that stays the same basically, yeah. and and you know, we use cash for that um, and and we use electronic money for that all the time. Um, There's some parts of the world where it's harder to do that. We'll probably get into that in a little bit here, but, um, but so basically when I say currency, I mean something that, um, that is really, uh, stable in value, stable in purchasing power so that it can be used as a sort of pure store of value, um, and a means of exchange. Um, And then also sort of as a side effect of that, it ends up being a unit of account or a standard of deferred payment. Um, And so, yeah, and so basically, uh, you know, what happened was I got some of the people from my company builder together and we made a list of all the problems with Bitcoin on a whiteboard and uh, the the stability of the value is number one. Um, There were many others that we considered as well and we sort of asked ourselves, Could we solve all of these either all at once or a bunch of them up front and then more of them over the course of time to produce like the actual true cryptocurrency that ends up being useful around the world um, and and, you know, seriously offering an alternative to fiat money. And it took us some thinking, uh, but eventually we concluded, yeah, we think that we could do that Um, and, and so that's why we decided to start the project and so we our team. Kind of, we come from this group called Paradigm Academy, which is itself embedded in this larger movement called Effective Altruism, which is a bunch of people thinking about, um, and, and there's many different types of thought in Effective Altruism, but there's, you know, the, the sort of simple version of it is like, how do we figure out which charities are actually useful where we're not just throwing our money away and then donate our money to those. It's mm-hmm. kind of the simplest form. And then kind of on the full other end of the spectrum in the EA movement is like, Think about the entire future history of the universe, yep. and what is the m- most impactful thing you right here can do yeah. to actually cause that all to unfold in the direction of utopia, as far as opposed yeah. to the direction of destruction or dystopia.
0: I mean, in a very pragmatic way, it's it's a it's a <coughs> mode of thinking about how to effectively apply energy to problems. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so you know, and so some people on that end of the spectrum. End up thinking a lot about things like artificial intelligence yeah. where the idea is if you get something that is super intelligent that can basically just control the future well then that's kind of the big biggest leverage point on how everything turns out after that and so you have to make sure you do it the right way and yeah. you know if you can do it the right way you should probably do it sooner etc so yeah.
0: Except it also induces this kind of singularity past which it's <clears throat> difficult to understand what actually exists from That's a moral right. standpoint. Right. <laughs> so you That's kind of right. have to do some discounting. That's but right. But yeah, yeah, that it's always an interesting perspective. So yeah. where did this take? So it, it you kind of it, it emerged out of this context. Yeah.
1: So so the, the the initial I would say ten or so people on the reserve team mm-hmm. are from are kind of part of this movement, and so we kind of because of that um, we have a, a particularly strong and uh, I would say directed profit motive where we wanna make a lot of money because we have these big things that we wanna do. Some of them are are more in the direction of like donating to existing stuff and some are more in the direction of impacting these like these big technological things that will happen over the rest of our lives. Um, So we're we're very like profit oriented. We did go into this field because um, we thought it would be a way to make money but then also because we think a lot about these big problems, we have become sort of obsessed with human coordination and like institutional design and so on. And, and money is, in a sense, kind of the most or one of the most basic coordination mechanisms that we use as a species um, where, you know, there's a lot to say about this, but like, um, you know, it's like if you think about like a small group of friends, they don't need to use money to sort of interact with each other because they can all sort of keep track of who has been cooperative mm-hmm. and who hasn't, who owes a favor to the group and who is yep. owed a favor, et cetera. And then if you if you try to scale that up to a big enough group of people, it just becomes logistically infeasible to mm-hmm. track. And- um,
0: Logistically infeasible, you get all the same sort of scaling problems that you would get with technology. I've actually written explicitly about this in some of my own writing, but you know, you get Issues with redundancy, scalability—like it, it's effectively stored in, in brains and minds, right. which you know they die, they suffer head trauma, <laughs> they get exiled. You know, people—you yeah. you start introducing incentives for deception, mm-hmm. uh, and so then emerges this need for externalizing that into right. objective space. Yeah, exactly. And, and hence we start having tokens to which we ascribe certain value or trust, yep. and uh, and the birth of money occurs. Exactly, something, something along that. Along along those lines, obviously it's a much more complex story, but yeah, it it is interesting how it is this kind of shared collective computer or mechanism for us to maintain and coordinate action over time, yet we lost sight of money's role um, in society, like in that way or in that context for so long, and we're kind of unpacking it again, Right, which is cool.
1: Yeah, and, Yeah. and, and this is one of the cool things about when I discovered Bitcoin, I kind of switched from thinking of money as this weird... That was just baked into reality that was kind of like a government institution to mm-hmm. like, oh wait No, this is just a technology and we can think about what the purpose of it is And we can think about maybe if there are ways to improve how to achieve that purpose yeah. Like I, I grew up in a liberal setting where it was kind of thought that money was bad mm-hmm. And if you had if you were a rich person, then you were like greedy or evil um, And and people tend to just focus on all the problems with money mm-hmm. um, and there's kind of a lack of acknowledgement of the way that it allows us to Engage in this massive, like, cooperative activity yeah. as an entire species around the entire yeah. planet in a way that, if you if you subtract the ability to use money, that would just all break down like overnight. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, what what works well becomes invisible quite quickly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um.
1: So. Until it stops working. <laughs> and yeah. Then, and then you have to deal with it. Exa- well, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And and so, kind of that, I guess the next part of this where it's like we're, we're motivated by making money ourselves. We're also fascinated by trying to improve human coordination. And when looking into this, we sort of realized that we take functional money for granted, but there are a bunch of parts of the world where it's not really working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually because the government institutions that that support the money are themselves dysfunctional in some way or another, whether it's corruption or incompetence or just bad luck um, in terms of the situation that's unfolding. And so you get Um, you get typically inflation or devaluation. Um, And so basically what that means, if you think about what money is in the uh, the sense of like just being a way to track sort of who has done favors for whom and who's owed a favor, if you're using an inflationary currency, what that really means is like the favors that you've done, that record is sort of being wiped away over time. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't call in those favors soon from other people or from society generally, um, then we'll, they sort of are saying like, we don't recognize that you did that anymore. Yeah. It's a decay function. Exactly.
0: On, like our, on interpersonal, um, uh, I guess, interpersonal delivery of value. Right. In a way.
1: Yeah. And so the, when, when we really thought this through, we were like, holy shit these people are living in a fundamentally less cooperative situation Mm -hmm. because of the fact that their their governments aren't able to handle the situation around currency yeah and in a lot of the situations it really does seem like it's corruption um, which you know i've sort of had to confront more and more as we've done this project and we've started to like travel to these places and look at like what's actually going on so yeah. um
0: and just just to add on to that as well it's like what we know about the psychology of cooperation you know with respect to scarcity versus abundance you know the the way that we actually interact if if we're in an ecosystem of abundance it's quite easy for us to look for cooperative uh, cooperative opportunity um, to look for a positive sum um, interaction potential all these things that just Become uh, the cost of which becomes far higher once you inject any type of scarcity dynamics, right. and inflation is effectively just this this sort of induced scarcity. Yeah, yeah,
1: yep, I agree with that. And that's that's a tough one because it's like I don't have a way to like quantitatively demonstrate that. Maybe you do. Um, Working on it. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because it, that definitely seems to me like a very likely sort of second order effect. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, intuitively, but i don't I don't have sort of like proof of it. so if yeah, you can tell me more about. so that. I mean
0: it depends proof proof is a loose you know proof is a difficult word mm-hmm. oftentimes uh, I'm interested I've been experimenting with uh, with models around that basically agent-based modeling. and if you uh, I, it's an it's an inductive jump to jump from um, well-represented psychological truths about individuals to representing those heuristically in a mod or in a simulation and then, Tweaking different variables right. and, and seeing what happens, like, um, but you can get a shape of the space. You can get an idea of the space to some extent, and and to what extent you consider that proof versus perhaps just useful yeah. uh, is debatable. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's kind of I like playing around in that space.
1: Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I think
0: I think it's a pretty. I think you can make a pretty compelling case um, based on what those in correspondences between what we model or what what is modeled in terms of these cooperative systems. Um, Based on real psychological data, and uh, increasingly neurological data, uh, and what we see in yeah. in reality. Yeah. At some point, correlation is all we've got. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. In any so, case. So so anyway. So, so we, we digress. Yeah, we digress. So, circle back. So <laughs> we're we're aiming to try to solve that problem, um, and you know, in terms of numbers, if you look at official numbers there's like 16 countries with 20% or higher inflation per year mm-hmm. right now. Um, we've been digging into are those some, geographically clustered. Uh, no, they're all around the world. Okay. Um, uh, a larger proportion in Africa and South America. Um, but they're all around. Hmm. Um, and they tend to be situations where the environment is politically unstable. Um, in some cases there've been like wars, in some cases, just like in sta- unstable governments. Mm. Um, uh,
0: Corruption and conflict, generally.
1: Yep, yep. and um, and we've started to look at some unofficial numbers, and it looks like there could be much, m- sort of more prevalence than is officially reported. I don't wanna misquote, so I'm not gonna say anything in terms of numbers right now, but um, if you look at the devaluation of currencies against Um, against external stable currencies like the dollar, um, then those devaluations tend to look like much higher than the internal inflation amount. And generally speaking, as far as I can tell so far, what happens is currencies will be devalued on the global market relative to other stable currencies. And then there's kind of a lag before that shows up as price inflation in the local market as as sort of the, the economies all shake out and then the goods end up costing more in those local currencies sure. because the currency has lost its value in the global sense. Yep. Um, anyway. It's like an, an
0: outside-in effect as opposed to uh, inside-out or, yeah. or top-down as opposed to emergent bottom-up right. effect.
1: Um, and, um, you know, it's not always a bad thing for a devaluation to happen because then it makes that currency cheaper on the global market and it can cause then it to be easier for that business to, or, or that, that company listen to me, um, that country hmm. to start for, you know, the local businesses and companies to start exporting goods because yep. now it's cheaper on the global market for people to buy those. Yep. And so a lot of these things, like it's easy to kind of come down and say like, you know, inflation's always bad. Um, or, you know, uh, you know, a dev- devaluation is always bad. Um, there, it gets subtle. Like if, yeah. you, if you look close, or the opposite closely, would be, I
0: guess something like, um, uh, Pegging, pegging a currency, a national currency, uh, to a, a more stable and m- more high-value currency and therefore perhaps disincentivizing uh, internal production or production of certain goods within that country's borders and importing those instead and, and therefore having less tax revenue or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, so we, um, I, I guess I could give a quick background on on like the project and where we are at this point yeah that definitely okay so um, so we're like
0: we're basically we're at this point where you you've identified this problem of instability in, in particular countries around the world um, associated that with certain problems with respect to, to governance and the role of, of or interaction between you know governance corruption and, and general global markets mm-hmm. and you're creating a solution in the form of reserve mm-hmm. stable coin Yep. and this brings us up to today and and what you're up to
1: yeah and so so we we put together a team of about 10 from that company builder paradigm Academy and then we recruited um, to the point where we have um, about 20 people full-time in the project now um, and we um, we worked for a long time like I like spent all of my personal money getting the thing off the ground and a lot of people just like worked For the promise of tokens in the future for a long time. Eventually um, We went out and raised some money Um, so um, We're supported by coinbase and Peter Thiel and Sam Altman um, and um, Digital currency group and block tower and neo global capital and a bunch of other crypto funds Um, Maybe one that people on the show would know is crypto Lotus Mm -hmm. Um, and um, and And that also helped us to sort of communicate to the broader world that there's something interesting going on here, because, you know, as is evident from this conversation so far, even this topic ends up being really complex. It's hard for people to tell, like, is this another weird (laughs) scam, or like, are you doing something interesting? Yeah, sure. So in part, we focused on getting big names so that we could show people that there's something interesting happening, Um, and we um, we spent a long time thinking very carefully and learning a lot of background uh sort of models around monetary econ um as as we were structuring our protocol um and uh, this was it was a little bit contentious um because um there's there are a lot of other people trying to do this too right now we're not the only project trying to create a stable coin mm-hmm. um and um, and, you know, crypto markets are crashing and so there's like a lot of pressure to go very fast and like compete and do everything as quickly as possible and get to market. And we want to do that. Like we want to we want to be competitive, but we also the closer we looked, the more problems we found with all the sorts of designs we were thinking of, all the sorts of designs we were seeing um, other people in the space come up with and write about and Uh, and so we kept on being like, well, nope, we have to spend another whole cycle, like analyzing this problem and building out our model of this scenario and so on.
0: Um, I mean, to be, it it seems given the target of your product, um, responsible, I mean, it seems imperative that one is responsible about the type of system you try to inject into a, a country that's already having enough problems, maintaining some sort of stability. Yeah
1: absolutely yeah it that's another piece of this where (laughs) the more we've gotten into this the more responsibility we've felt where it's like okay if we're really going to do this um we're really going to create a currency that's going to be adopted um at least as a store of value even if not also as a means of exchange by a you know millions of people in um in these emerging economies where the local currency is unstable if we produce something that's pegged to another currency and then that peg breaks, well then we haven't really helped those people, we've actually hurt them. Yeah. Um, and that could be, you could actually cause a really large amount of destruction, um, even if your intention is to, is to help people um, you know, cooperate and improve their lives. And so we've grown quite concerned that some of the stable coin designs that are being built right now actually could um, get to a really uh, substantial level of adoption and then break. And that's that's part of the issue here. It's not just that they could break at all. So actually, if you look at the history of stable coins, there's one called Nubits that um, the way that it was built, it didn't get very big before it broke. Mm-hmm. And so some people in the crypto world lost money holding what they thought was a stable asset. Yeah, and that's bad. But it's not that bad mm-hmm. like probably those people were dealing with like sort of monopoly money that they had earned in the crypto world anyway And it's I think it's just not that big a deal um, but um, Part of the plan of some of these stablecoin projects is to hold a bunch of dollars in a bank account and yeah. manually stabilize their currency until they can't anymore um, and so they're gonna try to sort of grow it to a large enough state that the way they, th- they think about it once it gets big enough um, and that there's enough velocity and so on, then the thing is sort of self-sustaining mm-hmm. and, and everyone is confident enough and no one will lose confidence and yeah. can just grow forever. Um, but that
0: critical moment is deferred until you've already had, you know, onboarded quite, a, quite exactly. a number of people. Exactly, and so the yeah. thing
1: is that y- you could get to billions of dollars in, um, uh, in, you know, in market cap of, of a stablecoin, where it's, that's you know, basically, it could just be billions of dollars of people, uh, people's savings accounts, essentially. Um, and then and then now is the time where we're going to test this like novel economic instrument and see if it's going to work. Yeah. And when we look at some of the economic instruments that are being designed, we're just like, no, we just think it's not going to work. Um, and so, so, yeah, so we're concerned about this. We don't really know what to do about it yet. That um, is also
0: an interesting side effect of, um, of kind of the, the modern technological variant of currency design that may have been... Um, you know, the world may have had more tolerance for for failure states in a world where there's kind of a bulkheading going on with nation states, right? And obviously, there there can be cascades or knock-on effects from um, you know the implosion of a of a given economy based on you know corruption or bad choices for uh, for a particular nation or its leaders. Um, but now we're we're entering a world where you know, regardless of the the barriers to entry politically, in theory, one of these currencies could be adopted. In all 16 of these countries at the same time and right. fail simultaneously as well yep yeah
1: yeah yeah it's a, it's a weird era where the way I think about it it's like and this is um, if any of your viewers know about sea setting they might have heard <laughs> Patrick Friedman say this As uh, this cool idea had where it's like um, with a company if a company is providing a service poorly a startup can come in and disrupt that mm-hmm. and either sort of take over that market and serve the market well or force that incumbent to up its game in order to, you know, outcompete the startup and then provide a better service itself. Yes. And that's something that doesn't really happen with governments, typically. We don't have startup governments that are the, just like coming in and out-competing the existing governments. Um, and, and so their idea, with Steve said, is like, well, let's build islands in the ocean so we mm-hmm. can have startup governments that then like force the existing governments to do yeah. better. Um, this isn't exactly that, but it's startup currencies is mm-hmm. like the era that we're in now, where. You know up until recently you couldn't really just create a startup currency now you can um, and and so then for better or worse for better or for worse <laughs> and and so it's gonna it's gonna create a situation where now there's all this competition over how to do currency and it could be that the result of all this is not that any one of the startup currencies gets adopted it could be that now these these countries that were able to maintain these kind of shitty currency situations that benefited the people in power will be forced To up their game and produce something that their citizens want to keep using um, so as to maintain their level of power just with like a little bit less discretion yeah Um, and that would be a pretty good outcome that wouldn't make as much money for me um, (laughs) but but it would still be a pretty good outcome
0: I mean it makes a lot of sense Uh, like in the evolutionary frame it's kind of like looking at cryptocurrencies as um, a force shift in the environment to which the state actors have to adapt or die, mm-hmm. as opposed to looking at cryptocurrencies as the primary new entrant or the, the, the primary new um, mutation, so to speak, that is trying right. to survive itself. Right. Yeah.
1: Yep. Um, so let's see. So where were we? So, um, yeah. So, so how are you going
0: about doing this? Yeah. Um, or what is what is in your mind the responsible solution and how are you going about uh, you know bringing that into the world?
1: hmm. Yeah. So. usually when uh, You're starting a new currency. I mean where normally that would mean you're a nation-state Or or a central bank of a nation-state The thing that you it's like if you just create some new currency out of thin air and you tell everyone like this is how much It's worth. It's really really hard You can't just tell people this is the value of this new arbitrary unit and then have them all go along with that Mm -hmm. if you could then we wouldn't need exchange rate pegs. We wouldn't need like market-based exchange rate pegs, because you you could just create a new currency and you know convince everyone of its value, and then it would just work as this nice store of value and means of exchange. Um, because you can't just do that. Well, in um, some ways, isn't
0: a peg kind of a a shortcut to trying to convince people of the value? Yeah,
1: so a peg is a market-based way of doing that, that that has been shown to work. You're convincing
0: somebody that like, we we can maintain the system responsibly um, in some, or even I guess the signal being sent out is the ability to responsibly and in a trustworthy manner, um, maintain the currency reserves uh, that are backing that peg.
1: Yeah, but then you have to think about, well, why is that? Why is that sufficient Mm -hmm. and and so basically the reason why that's sufficient is because you're taking you're borrowing the existing Consensus about the value of some other asset usually a currency um And and importing that consensus into your new asset class that doesn't have any consensus yet And the way that you're doing that is effectively by making the new currency just a virtual version of the existing currency so, like if you create a new currency and you peg it to the dollar mm-hmm. um, then effectively what you're saying is like this thing is the same as the dollar because you can always trade it with the central actor for one dollar or yeah. for how many dollars let's just say one for simplicity um, and so and so the reason why then it becomes important to maintain sufficient reserves um, is To be able to always maintain that promise so if you can if you can sort of demonstrate to the market that no matter how many people have traded their unit of currency for a dollar before you you can always do that yeah then people will um, be able to to sort of think it through in a sort of simplified game theory sense and be like okay well this thing can always be redeemed for this other thing therefore it's, it's, its value is at least that much because i know i can always at least trade it for that yeah. And then as long as they trust the consensus of that other existing currency, then they know that you know they can always get that for it and then they can always trade that currency for whatever other thing, whatever yeah. goods or services.
0: let in a way it seems almost like a, you say like a virtualized system or a virtualized outgrowth in a way mm-hmm. of, of a particular currency. It is this uh, almost like this experiment in trying to couple to otherwise uncoupled economic entities. Right. And in theory, if over time they, they became completely entra- entrained with one another or totally stable, um, one might even consider extending the primary currency into that space.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you, mean, you mean just like, let's say if you pegged the dollar, then just switching to using dollars?
0: Yeah, like if, if, if over time one you know maintained a peg for sufficiently long time and demonstrated because like why you know in, in in one sense it's interesting to me to, to think about the concept of like well what ga- what gains do we get from maintaining separation there if the goal is to right. peg yeah. um, and part of the reason that we're pegging instead of just using the currency is because of the boundary condition that we've had thus far being different governance like different systems of governance, different actual nation state entities that aren't going to simply appropriate the currency of another nation.
1: Yeah, and so in some cases, you know, dollarization is just when one country does just accept that it's gonna use the money of another country. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is true in Panama. Yeah, Um, sacrificing
0: the control that they might otherwise have of of kind of managing their internal uh, needs based on currency uh, or monetary policy.
1: Exactly. And so then I think part of the idea with Creating an independent currency that is nevertheless pegged is that yeah Maybe you do get to that point where now there's enough of a consensus about this currency That doesn't really have to do with the fact that it's pegged and you can go off of that exchange rate peg Mm -hmm. um, and then implement sort of more uh, uh, Sort of more comprehensive monetary policy internally, which is like a useful thing to do sometimes Mm -hmm. Um, So given this perspective of what a peg is and why it's useful for a new currency um, we found it really useful to think about sort of the two features of an exchange rate peg that have to be maintained uh, for it to continually work Um, and so one is the amount of value in reserve like you just always have to have sufficient value in reserve to redeem um, However many units of the new currency as people would want to redeem at any given time Mm -hmm. and then number two is the credibility of the promise to Always redeem Mm -hmm. essentially where um, you know, if you look at the history of exchange rate pegs failing, which they do um, It's it's either because there wasn't enough value held in reserve and so that value ran out or it's that um, there was some value left, but the entity that was in charge of doing the redemption chose yeah. to stop doing the they redemption. defected from the game. Yeah, yeah. and so um, you know fundamentally this is p- part of the reason why it's kind of like pretty exciting to try to do this with with blockchain technology is that the trustless element is actually a big deal in that if, if the redemption process is just written in code and you trust that the network is gonna not be suborned and, and the code's gonna continue executing mm-hmm. as it's written, then you actually get the second one for free if, yeah. you, if you're doing a totally decentralized stablecoin. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the more centralized stablecoins, coins, that's not true, the redemption process happens off chain. But in the case of ours, the redemption process is all on chain. Yeah. And so, um, and so you sort of people can trust um without having to trust any humans that uh that that as long as there is sufficient value held um In reserve it will be redeemable for the the native token yeah
0: I think there's a there's a fairly strong case to be made that I mean a lot of the volatility that gets injected is injected from that uncertainty of of human behavior Mm -hmm. um, and people effectively betting on human behavior and then other humans betting on those humans behavior and yeah and before you know it you create some sort of positive feedback mechanism which is I guess the the antithesis of what you want in terms of stability because really what you want is something that uh, as soon as there's volatility will kind of go back to the, the stable point, the, the basin, right. um, like it, uh, you know, as soon as you get a positive feedback loop started, you want some sort of negative feedback, like a thermostat, right? Like the temperature goes up and you yep. want some cooling system, right? The temperature goes down. You want some heating system. Yep. Right. Um, and it, it, it tends to be at least, and you are saying you studied a lot of the history of, of where markets have broken down. It's these constant piling, on, piling on, um, of like layers of speculative behavior upon speculative behavior, which is. You know akin to this runaway positive feedback loop with no there's no cooling system right right like the the heater is stuck in the on position and yeah. and there's no air conditioner
1: yeah yep yeah. yeah that's a good way of putting it um you really can draw a direct analogy between a stable coin system like ours and a thermostat where some some variable changes and there's a sensor that's watching that variable and then once it goes above a certain a uh, certain level then the system responds to, to sort of mm-hmm. move it back in the other direction and then same um, uh, Underneath the peg so um, So yeah, so our our view on all of, on how to do this um, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of do the long-form version of this and feel free to cut me off mm-hmm. if, if you want to move this forward so um, We thought a lot about the right way to do this. We thought about the um, sort of asset-backed approach um, of, of having dollars in the bank account or gold in a vault or something like that. Um, we thought about the um, sort of completely internal collateral approach where you just have tokens that are native to your system and there's no external collateral of any kind. It's mm-hmm. just um, collateralized sort of with the internal collateral. And then we thought about the um, sort of external but decentralized collateral where the system holds tokens that are not implemented by itself um, that have some value for some other reason. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately we chose the third one and I wanna try to explain why. So um, for the sort of external uh, centralized collateral approach where you have dollars or gold or something in a bank account, um, we think that there are the, the, the good thing about this, there's something that's very good about these systems, which is that you're tying the value very directly to something that really does have a nicely entrenched consensus a- about the purchasing power, right? Like the dollar or like like gold, where it's like this very long history. I mean, gold is somewhat more volatile, but um, and that's, you know, if you sort of naively compare that to, well, what if you just tied it directly to, you know, some other cryptocurrency? Well, then... Like there really are no pure crypto assets that yeah. have stability. That's the whole point. That's the yeah, whole problem exactly. we're trying to solve. And so we think that... Um, I
0: mean, it's like the maintenance of stability is difficult enough without trying to effectively orbit something that is itself
1: chaotic. Right. Yeah. And so, and so <clears throat> you know, there's something very nice and attractive about that centralized um, external collateral setup, um, which is just that, yeah, y- you can peg it to something that is nicely stable. And so naively, that was kind of the, the obvious choice. The reason why we decided not to do it is that we kind of gamed out in our heads, you know, thinking through expected future scenarios, how those sorts of systems would end up turning out in the longer term, and we didn't like what we saw. So in particular, um, we think that there are kind of two ways that they can turn out. One is um, to sort of stick to the policy of not requiring users to go through a KYC process to get a key or key pair that um, is able to custody the tokens. Um, Where like anyone can generate a key just like bitcoin and then uh, they can receive tokens and hold them and then spend them. Um, Where a common setup right now for some of these um, asset-backed coins is you have to go through a KYC process if you want to initially lock up collateral in exchange for the tokens or if you want to redeem the tokens in exchange for collateral, yeah. But uh, then a, the you then the you door. then you can send the tokens <laughs> around to anyone, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And they don't have to go through a KYC process, yeah. Um, and so we think that you know groups that uh, that build something like that, we we forecast that uh, eventually they'll be f- um, sort of forced in one of two directions. So one direction is um, if they if they continue to not require KYC then um, we think banks won't want to be in that business because then the bank is essentially taking in money um, that is then used to back this virtual token that sort of has then the value of that money because of its redeemability yeah that can then be sent around anonymously to anyone mm-hmm. and you know banks are subject to uh, the rules of governments they're yep. very very heavily regulated and Governments have a natural incentive to want more information about their citizens in order to govern them, mm-hmm. and so they, you know, they tend to want to be able to track the flow of money and control the flow of money. And this doesn't exactly permit that. This mm-hmm. actually makes that harder. And if you look at the history of money services businesses, um, you know, people talk about like eGold or Liberty Reserve. Um, these things tend to be shut down by governments, and we have well-established agencies and governments whose job it is to shut things like this down yep um, and so regardless of your you know political inclinations or what you think is good or bad um i think it's just i think it's just a fact that um uh th- that these businesses might not be allowed to persist sure. um, and so then what i mean that- like regardless
0: of what side of that argument you're on i mean most people who know what they're talking about foresee conflict Yep. In the space, right. whether like you're, you you know, whether the answer to that is to avoid the conflict and find ways of cooperating with government actors, um, perhaps in the kind of like forced evolutionary scenario you're mentioning, uh, encourage them to be better um, stewards mm-hmm. of the currency through uh, innovation, or you're you, you take a more anarcho-capitalistic approach and you know, or a more Bitcoin maximalistic approach and um, yeah. and and foresee. Uh, uh, I guess armed warfare, <laughs> the <laughs> right. government funded right. by Bitcoin, but but conflict is a part of both scenarios. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so, um, so so one one outcome that we see where so it's like either you know that business can just be shut down mm-hmm. um, if if the proprietor decides to shut it down because they have the ability to do that with that the control that they have, or um, <clears throat> they could choose to um, try to maintain the business still while keeping it anonymous. And the two ways that we could see of doing that, excuse me, um, would be um, to essentially lie to the banks about the fact that they're holding money on behalf of this type of business, Mm -hmm. so that the bank thinks that it's, you know, some money for some other purpose. Um, Well, the problem with that is that then you can't really do an audit if the bank itself doesn't know the money is there. You can't tell everyone else that the bank is holding the money. Or maybe you find banks who are willing to hold the money but they don't want their governing governments to know that they're holding the money in which case you also can't do an audit and sort of yep. sh- prove to your users that the money is there if the government isn't allowed to know that it's there and so we think that sort of one option is maintain anonymity but at the expense of transparency essentially and then if you, if you sort of go, go back to that two-prong framework for thinking about exchange rate pegs well, you know, even if you trust that entity to redeem uh, the money if they have it, you don't, you don't have a way of telling whether the money's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then uh, that ends up, we think, being... I mean, other
0: than past behavior. Like, that's right. So, so long as that's they're right. behaving in line with their, their assumed right. um, intent and uh, stated capacity.
1: Yeah, yeah. and th- I think this is, in a sense, the most thoroughly tested yeah. uh, stablecoin design so far. Mm-hmm. in that this is, you know, regardless of what's happening on the back end with the banking situation, which is private information that I don't have access to. We've seen in the case of Tether that if you don't, um, if you don't give the crowd sufficient information about what's going on with the assets in the background, a lot of mistrust develops. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to pass judgment one way or the other in Tether. Um, it, for all I know, the business is totally legitimate. Um, And they just don't have a way of proving that to people. Um, But regardless of what's going on in the background, we think it's not a sustainable model that can really grow to be like a reserve currency for the whole world because of that trust problem. So then the other option is to require a KYC process to get a key. And so if you make it so that anyone holding the currency, not just uh, creating and redeeming, but anyone holding it, has had to go go through a KYC process essentially to get a key that's on a whitelist. Then you can have, you know, some some, let's say there's like a company that's doing this. Um, then the government maybe can subpoena that company and get information about whose key is is each person's and, and track where all of the money is going. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in that case, um, we think banks would probably be willing to be in that business. And so then you can do audits and prove that you have the money. And so we think in that scenario, you can get the trust of, of the audience. Um, But the downside, there's kind of two downsides to this. So one is that, um, uh, we think that there are just a lot of people, uh, and companies and so on in the world that have a preference for privacy. And so given the option of a more private version or a version where they have to go through the KYC process, they won't want to go through the KYC process. And so it might just be hard to get adoption from those, um, parts of, of the market. But then also, um, Part of the interesting thing about cryptocurrency is that it is the like financial inclusion aspect where people who don't have access to banking can be a part of the system. Mm -hmm. And if you look at why they don't have access to banking, in many cases, it's because they don't have a government ID number in the first place. They were just born in some country and never put into the system. Yeah. And so they can't prove to a bank who they are. And so banks aren't willing to deal with them. And this system is kind of just like a slightly more like. Secondarily tradable asset that's like a bank, it's like yeah. a bank deposit, and and so um, and has the same requirements for identifying yourself. And so, if we want to so try like, to like, like
0: some of the problems that would emerge in terms of like not being not having an address here in the United States, and therefore not being able to have some sort of uh, proof of residence and not get a job or right. not get a bank account, and therefore you right. have this cascading side effect, but yeah. you know much larger on the scale of, of right. an entire nation. Yeah. Uh, you know basically. Millions of people falling off the side of that system, and right. you know those people being potentially re-included um, by by new inroads or new more yeah. accessible ways of kind of accounting for the, their their uh, inclusion in the system.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like so, that. if we want the future of cryptocurrency to be accessible to those people, mm-hmm. then either it, it can't. Re- so, there's actually two ways of solving this: either it can not require KYC, mm-hmm. or it can require KYC. And then we just have to build a worldwide physical infrastructure for allowing people to identify themselves, even if they don't have a government ID number yet. This is something we're thinking about doing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> this is not like in the roadmap. There's no, no promises <laughs> about this, but. But not not that
0: you weren't thinking about like piggybacking off of other identity solutions in the crypto space that have been emerging or partnering I'm with. I'm interested in that too.
1: Okay. Um, things pop up so fast. I'm sure we don't even know about all of them. Yeah. But a, a lot of those are sort of technical back end solutions, not people building the physical infrastructure needed to get people into the system in the first place. Yeah. Where I think the, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but the Adhar project in India mm-hmm. is like the most interesting flagship example of this where um, where basically the Indian government approached this entrepreneurial guy and said, hey, will you build this physical infrastructure that like covers the whole country where people can yeah. go in and biometrically identify themselves mm-hmm. and get an ID number for the first time. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, it's a, it's a census problem, really. Yeah, anyway. and,
1: and, it, and it, it worked. I mean, it's contentious now because they've kind of started forcing people to use the system in a way that not everyone likes and what have you. Yeah. So there's always going to be contention about this. But... You know, you could imagine building a, a, an infrastructure like that all around the world um, so that even if you don't have a government ID number, your way into the system is to go scan your thumb, you know, have something look at your iris probably, and then you get a number and now you can be a part of the system in a way that governments can track. You know, mm-hmm. again, it depends on your political yeah. sort of leanings, whether you think that's the right way forward or just creating a cryptocurrency that doesn't require any kyc is the right way to do it yeah Our one
0: approach... thing, one interesting aspect about kind of going that route of, of you know even if it might sound a little bit uh, like one might be making themselves susceptible to tracking or, or kind of like invasive procedures um, if you compare the if you can if, if you can create systems that are trustless that do effectively transcend state actors in positive ways, you actually you know have on your hands technology that could, uh, you know, stand a much better chance at at responsibly um, opening itself up to certain types of um, introspection of, of of like what its behavior is, right? Like in the way that states don't at all right now. So again, what, it's what kind do of, you mean by that? So um, who do we if if a government in India, for example, if they're running this project, um, who knows what happens with the data once you do your iris scan? Um, who's controlling the flow of data? How is it being used? All of that is quite opaque. And all of it is also subject to any other incentives that are happening within that state, mm-hmm. or you know, it's also subject to any um, any abuses that might happen with a, um, like a destabilization in the governance structures, or even an election. Um, and you know, basically, someone new takes power, and we have this problem in the United States right now, where like you know, we constantly keep on adding new executive powers and, and not realizing that. The next person is going to the next president is going to have those powers, regardless of whether we like that next president or right, not. Right. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these a lot of these issues seem to um, they stem from these types of uh, uh, rivalrous systems that happen um, not exclusively, but often within the political games that emerge uh, at the at the nation state level. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can step beyond that, outside of of that game theoretic space of, of nations acting in uh, fundamentally rivalrous ways, and therefore potentially acting irresponsibly with your data, uh, you might have a better chance at uh, uh, developing trustworthy systems that responsibly use um, you know, biometrics or uh, can, can play new games that are kind of outside the accessibility of, of state actors. Um, like you might actually be able to, like I, I could envision myself Trusting a system that whose source code uh, was transparent mm. um, that asked me for biometrics uh, more than and it, it was basically outside of the kind of not outside of the reach of the state, but kind of transcended the legitimacy yeah. of the state. Yeah. I see myself feeling more comfortable giving my data to that than I would yeah. feel giving my data to the U.S. government right. or, uh, you know, the Chinese government I or see. whomever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's, uh, <laughs> That's an interesting idea. I'm not right. saying I do feel that way, I'm just saying I could yeah. see, like, it, like, it's interesting to try to, even though I understand that, like, the the, the power dynamics are right now, such that um, the states, state actors are in a highly leveraged position, mm-hmm. it is interesting to, to kind of play around with the idea of kind of trying to step outside of that, and then what's possible in the game theory. But,
1: yeah, yeah. cool.
0: That's out uh, there anyhow. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so which way are you going
0: with this? Are you guys are you guys actually building this infrastructure to onboard people na- you know, so, so nationally? So no, so, no, so okay. we're not
1: we're not building we're not building KYC infrastructure. Um, I would consider doing it in the future. Um, it's our our conclusion, sort of looking through all those options with the um, the asset backed approach is that if there's a way to do it, which is not which doesn't need banks, um, then that's better. Because, mm-hmm. because it's more robust because it doesn't have these issues that we discovered when we thought through those options And so kind of that constrains our space to searching through the you know internal decentralized collateral backing and the external decentralized collateral backing um, And and so we thought actually a fair amount about these internal um, Decentralized collateral backing systems the thing I mean by that is you can have a system where for instance uh I think a good example is the system called Senior Shares, mm-hmm. which uh, was originally proposed back in 2014 by this guy, Robert Sams. Um, and it's a pretty basic idea. So you just have two currencies instead of one. Um, and the simple labels that they're given are the coin, which is like the currency and the share, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the, I don't know, the share, the equity in the system. Sure. Um, and anytime the price of the coin goes up higher than the desired price, let's just say it's $1 for simplicity, um, the system can mint and sell more coins into the marketplace in order to bring that price down, Mm -hmm. right? Where the idea is like, if you can buy newly minted coins from the system for a dollar and then go sell them onto the secondary markets for a dollar too.
0: Incentivizing arbitrage. Yeah,
1: there's free profit and then arbitrage and people will do that until the price on the secondary market is brought back down to a dollar. And that transaction with the system of, of minting and selling coins it mints and sells them for the shares. Mm-hmm. So um, so the only way to buy the new coins is to trade in some number of shares and that can be done in an auction at whatever price. So people can bid against each other to say, well, I'm willing to trade one share per coin. And then you say, well, I'm willing to trade, you know, two shares per coin. Mm-hmm. Then the system clears that, that uh, order instead of this order. And so, and then in reverse, if the price of the coin goes below the desired price, let's say it's at 98 cents, um, people can go buy coins for 98 cents on the secondary market and then go trade them for a dollar worth of the shares um, with with the protocol. So the protocol yeah. mints shares and auctions them off for coins. And presumably that auction price is something like a dollar, so at yeah. least more than 98 cents. So, so long as
0: people much- are, are paying attention to the game and want to play the game in, in perpetuity. Right. Yeah.
1: And well, and I think that you know if there's if there's free money to be made, people will program bots to play the game at all hours. Mm-hmm. So I think the attention component is probably handleable. And that, you know, one proxy for that is to think about, well, what keeps the price of Bitcoin the same across all these exchanges? Now, at this point, there's so many bots with so much capital sure. that as soon as the price diverges a little bit, there's money to be made and someone makes those trades very quickly. Um, but the issue ends up being that um, the shares in the system are only valuable in as much as they can be traded for coins in the future. And in particular, in as much as they can be traded for like more coins than you have to pay for them right now. Um, and that fundamentally requires um, the, uh, the system to continue to grow mm-hmm. in terms of the number of coins. Yep. Um, and so if the market broadly comes to believe, even for a few days at a time, that, um, uh, you know, the general consensus is that it's not going to grow, um, that it's going to shrink, maybe because of a competing startup currency, of which there are many now, yeah. um,
0: or malicious actors, or a malicious actors yeah, actor, like yeah. Seating, seating information or yep,
1: yeah. Um, then maybe people don't want to buy shares, yeah. And in that moment, there's no way for the system to maintain its peg. Essentially, the yeah. the collateral in the system, um, the reserve account is doesn't have any value anymore, mm-hmm. and so like um,
0: so you wouldn't have anyone on the long side, right of the ledger.
1: Yeah. And so if you look at all of the different variants of this um, decentralized internal collateral um, approach, um, including um, like basis and terror, a couple of prominent projects of this type, we think that they all suffer from the same fundamental problem um, of, of it being possible for confidence to unwind in the system and that collateral to essentially lose its value. And then you no longer can maintain your exchange rate peg to whatever external currency. And we racked our brains for a long time trying to come up with an elegant way to do this that would actually work. um, And ultimately sort of came to a way of thinking about it where we we felt like we could kind of prove that like none of them were were clearly going to be stable. Where it's not that you can predict 100% that they'll unwind because maybe the conditions will be such that people will always maintain confidence because of whatever. Um, But we feel that it's the sort of thing where no amount of simulation um, can can give you a uh, good reason to think that it is going to work um, because fundamentally the thing you'd have to simulate is you know the future of the market yep. and we know from the fact that, you know, <laughs> we just can't do that. <laughs> like if anyone, could we might do that, be that, but it, we can't do yeah, that. Yeah, we could be that. We we can simulate it at one second per second. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. But uh, but you know, if someone could really predict that fully in the to the degree that you need to, they would be like taking all of the money off the table, um, and that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the. What this means to us is that 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 category of um, internal decentralized collateral is off the table and and so that puts us in the category of looking at the external decentralized collateral there's a question of can you do that so let me try to explain why we think you can um, what we think the main challenge in doing so is and how we think that we can solve that challenge so um, okay so The sort of simple um, sort of first first challenge that comes up is, well, let's say you're going to use crypto assets in your like reserve account. Um, actually, I'm going to switch terminology now because we chose to call the thing reserve. So mm-hmm. we use the term reserve to refer to our main stable currency. Um, okay. It's called the reserve. And uh, because of that, we call our account that sort of backs this, that's a smart contract on the blockchain, um, the vault. So uh, I'll start using the term vault as sort of the central bank account that's um, managing the, the exchange rate peg. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if your vault is holding crypto assets and then using those to buy back your stablecoin, well then obviously the, the main initial question is like, well, if the crypto assets are themselves volatile, what if they just go to zero or they, or the, or they go to such low value that now you only have 20% backing instead of 100% backing and then in that scenario, you, you can get a run on the bank, mm-hmm. um, or potentially even like a service attack if someone yep. intentionally attacks it. Um, <laughs> and and so um, that is that's right. So so you have to you have to somehow solve that. Um, and the way to solve that is through uh, we see sort of two tools for solving that. One in the long term, uh, we think the right way to solve that is um, essentially diversification where diversification of pure crypto assets doesn't really work now and probably won't work in the future. Even if you look at like the stock market, things tend to like go up and down all at once. And that's true in the crypto markets also. So you you can't be like, well, if we have Bitcoin and ether and, you know, a hundred different tokens, then we're solid because they all go up and down at the same time. But um, we think that you can get an interesting form of diversification by combining pure crypto assets like ether with Um, with these asset backed, more stable tokens. Um, And the way that that works is if you have a bunch of different asset backed tokens, like tokenized dollars, tokenized gold, um, maybe even tokenized securities like stocks and bonds, um, and maybe even like tokenized derivatives that like explicitly go up or down, you know, when some other asset class goes down or up. Uh, you can combine all of those and actually get a relatively stable portfolio Um, because now you are actually diversifying across a bunch of different asset classes um, that are either uncorrelated or anti-correlated. The issue of course is uh, sort of comes down to kind of what we discussed for why we wouldn't just build an asset-backed stablecoin directly which is that um, each one of those comes with some risk of default, of being shut down essentially. Um, either either a risk of you know there's a sort of direct counterparty risk of what if the issuer sort of runs away with the assets um, or what if their government or some or some government uh, seizes the assets or freezes the assets or otherwise stops them from operating and so we think that 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 makes it so that people aren't going to want to store all of their wealth or a huge amount of their wealth in any individually issued asset-backed stablecoin but if you get a hundred of them or 200 of them, and you stack them on top of each other in a portfolio, and those asset-backed stablecoins are issued from a whole bunch of different geographic uh, you know, jurisdictions around the world, then you're diversifying that direct counterparty risk because you have many different issuers, and you're diversifying the risk of government intervention because they're all issued from different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And so if some government or even a few governments at once pass laws that put these things out of business, that's actually only a small slice of your total portfolio. Yeah. Um, and so the long-term vision for, for dealing with um, the volatility of that on-chain collateral is to have this really diversified portfolio of assets that are themselves uh, of crypto assets that are themselves backed by some other real-world asset, be it a security or a commodity or or a currency. Um, and so we think that with that type of portfolio, which you can't achieve today, but we think you'll be able to achieve um, over the course of the years, you can have- Are you think like two years, five years? It's a really good question. I think timing, predicting timing of these things is really hard. So sure. any number I it's say always, is probably- That's <laughs> always to. a hard part yeah, yeah. of prediction. So I won't even predict, but yeah, it'll yeah. be multiple years. Okay. Um,
0: I'm also like, when, when I'm hearing you describe this, I'm thinking, you know, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations to some extent, you know, were in uh, financial innovation to serve a similar process of providing, uh, effectively more predictive, uh, predictive risk profiles over a diversified underlying set of assets. And not that it's not possible, obviously, but that it's highly contingent upon accurate prediction, uh, or operating within some, um, established, um, uh, bandwidth of, of risk prediction.
1: Yeah. Yeah, in our view, well, so there's a lot to say about that, but I, yeah. I, I see what you mean. Um,
0: if that, if that's totally wrong in your mind, let me know. I'm just curious well, because that's just like what's starting to pop up and yeah. come to mind. So if it's if it's the wrong mental image, um, let me know.
1: So the way that we're thinking about this eventual portfolio is that um, we think that. Like past performance, uh, like past price history isn't going to be a good predictor of future price history for any particular asset. At least you can't rely on that. Um, but we think that uh, past volatility can be a good predictor of future volatility for mm-hmm. that asset. Um, and this is something that we've gotten from conversations with um, with financial advisors, people who spend a lot of time thinking about these, so- these yep. sorts of portfolio decisions, in part because of... Um, the, the fact that I made a news website for financial advisors we sure, have a bunch of people on our network to talk to about that um, and so the idea is that if you're not optimizing for growth of that portfolio if you're if you're primarily optimizing for stability um, and you have access to sort of all of the different asset classes in the world um, and uh, th- then in that scenario we think that you can achieve a portfolio that is quite stable um, that that's our that's our prediction um, but so, I, you know, if, if you have thoughts about that, happy to go into that. Um, and that's the sort of long term setup for, for how to deal with volatility of crypto assets um, in the. Actually, let me say one more thing about that. So the interesting thing about this is that once you get to a point where that portfolio itself is relatively stable in like real value, um, mm-hmm. like aside from the the value denominated in a particular currency, um, then you can transition away from pegging to a fiat currency and actually have a token that just represents its sort of pro rata ownership of that basket, um, which is then sort of stable, roughly stable, not perfectly stable, but roughly stable in real terms, even if like the dollar goes down, right? So if you have some dollars in that portfolio, well, then that will affect the portfolio, but, but you can actually produce something that is a notable alternative to major fiat currencies. And this kind of harkens back to that original exciting idea of, you know, discovering Bitcoin and thinking, well, what if we had something that was that was actually sort of independent? Um, this is a true path to doing that. Yeah. And, and we th- in a lot of the stablecoin designs we thought about, we thought, well, this would work really well so long as the dollar stays stable. Yeah. Um, but then you start getting into thinking about like, well, can we have some sort of consumer price index? where we're just measuring the purchasing power of the currency and adjusting supply based on that instead of measuring its price against another currency and in theory there's you could do that but we don't really see an easy path a a realistic path to doing that on the blockchain to actually in a decentralized way aggregating enough information um, trustlessly to get like a consumer price index and do that and so we picked this way of doing it because we think it's actually a more reliable way to transition off of a peg to fiat currency and have something that's truly independently stable um, because it's basically borrowing the, the stability of that really diverse portfolio of other assets. So that's how we intend to solve it in the longer term. Um, well, it's like it's, it's, It seems like it's trying
0: to um, effectively give a, a measurement of the, metast- the meta-stability of the entire financial system to some extent is what it would reflect
1: um yes I mean, if, if, it, if where... it's like if
0: it's kind of like um, um, if you're basically um, if each one of these different assets is like a, essentially a, a dimension of volatility within this this overall uh, emergent um, stable uh, metric of, of value or stable stable currency of value uh, what you're doing or the stability of the the currency is a reflection of the the overall stability of Yeah. Every asset, every dimension within that system.
1: Right. right? Where, yeah. Where, where if you.
0: So in theory, the more assets within the world that could be included in it, the more stable. And eventually it's just a reflection of the entire uh, stability of asset creation of humanity's output something like that <laughs> something <laughs> like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seemed, i don't know like I'm, I'm just trying to build the mental model as we go here and so if, if that sounds crazy or weird or
1: i think that's about right um it's the thing is that you could have you could have a, a world where you have let's say there are only 10 asset types in the world mm-hmm. and um if you were to just have an equal amount of each asset type in the portfolio that might produce a really unstable portfolio um, and by varying the amounts that you have in the portfolio, yeah. it could be that you can actually increase the stability notably mm-hmm. um, by, by structuring the target portfolio. So it's not exactly just a perfect like um, uh, index of like all assets and all securities in the world. Um, yeah. y- y- some, some thought will have to go into exactly how to balance that portfolio um, so as to have even more stability than like yeah. the general set of them. Sounds like a lot of thought will have to go into it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, and and more thought's going to have to keep going into it over time. And this is um, so, you know, there's a whole conversation we can have around governance and how that portfolio will evolve. And if we have time, um, we can maybe do that, although we don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah, we're probably going to make sure to cover the basics here. So. um, So in the short term, since we don't have those other assets available, The only way we can see to accommodate to 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 account for the volatility of what is available on the blockchain is overcapitalization. So if you have Um, you know 10 stable coins and they're all supposed to be worth a dollar Mm -hmm. Um, then you have, you know, maybe like uh, $40 worth of value um, stored in assets that are somewhat more volatile where then you can say, well, it's at least highly improbable that that total value of the backing will go below ten dollars. It's not impossible; it totally could, yeah. um, but it's pretty unlikely. Um, and so, um, so now let me let me kind of just explain the actual mechanics of the system. Um, and like, for the people watching this. I apologize for the like you know hour long run up to this, um, <laughs> but I actually think it's the right way to explain it because when I when I just explain the mechanics of the system without all this background, there's a lot that's hard to see like why it is that way and why that would work. Um, so I hope that this has been a useful preamble. So basically, um, the system itself that we've designed has two tokens that are a part of it: the reserve and the reserve share. Um, and then it has this smart contract called the vault, and um, the vault at the beginning, like I just said, is overcapitalized. Um, the exact amount of overcapitalization will be a function of the portfolio um, that we select, like immediately prior to launch. So I don't have a specific number, but for the sake of example, let's think of it as 300% capitalization. Yep. So if you have you know 10 stable coins, you'd have uh, $30 worth of um, capital in the vault. And we start off pegging to the US dollar in terms of, uh, you know, our system is watching the price of the reserve token in terms of dollars and then adjusting supply up or down when the price changes in dollars um, so that each reserve token will be worth $1. And um, in order to get that overcapitalized vault, the, the thing that happens in, in, in this protocol is um, reserve shares are minted and sold for vault assets. So um, so a, sim- a simplified initial portfolio, for the sake of example, could be um, tokenized dollars. Uh, we particularly like the project TrueUSD, um, tokenized gold. Um, we like the project Digix, um, and ether. Let's say that those are our three asset types. And let's just say that our portfolio is one-third, one-third, one-third. So this means you have sort of 100% backing in terms of TrueUSD, 100% backing with Digix, tokenized gold, and 100% backing also with ether. Um, and so then um, If the system needs to expand, let's say demand for the stablecoin The reserve has gone up and the price on the secondary market is up to a dollar two, say um, Then what the protocol does is mints and sells reserve shares first um, In order to raise the sort of extra amount of collateral it would need in order to back additional stable coins mm-hmm. So let's say that the system only needs to mint one more stable coin to get to the equilibrium then uh, the system would mint and sell sort of $2 worth of reserve shares um, uh, and it would sell those for whatever tokens in its portfolio it needed more of based on what it currently has. Um, so let's say it sells them for ether because mm-hmm. it needed more ether. Um, and then the system can mint and sell additional reserve tokens. Yeah, um, and
0: it, by, by the way, it sells them for what it perceives it needs based on its analysis of the risk of each of the
1: assets it's holding in the vault. Um, yeah, it won't be doing any risk analysis okay. uh, live on the, on the protocol layer. It will just be, it has um, price feeds um, for all of the assets that it's holding. Okay. Um, and so it can calculate the dollar value of its current holdings.
0: And where is the, the desired portfolio balance of assets coming from?
1: Um, so initially we set that okay. um, and then that gets voted on over the course of time to okay. update it. Yeah, and that's the long governance conversation. We yeah, we don't have. Time <laughs> well, you, gotta, you know, you got to get out of here in eight minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so the so then basically what this means is um, that uh, well, okay. So skip to the next part. So the reason why people would buy reserve shares is that um, if in the event that the system scales up and becomes popular there's a way that holding reserve shares is financially valuable. So they're taking on financial risk by buying this volatile asset um, in exchange for potential financial reward. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they could lose all of their money. All <laughs> this could go to zero. Um, this is not just like a fake legal disclaimer. It's actually true. Sure. be careful what you buy, etc. cetera. Um,
0: I think plenty of people have, have felt the uh, the reality of that over
1: the past yeah, yeah, eight, nine months. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think, oh, yeah. and a oh, funny thing about that is that um, there's a slide that I have in a talk I like to give where it's like a list of the inflationary currencies. Yeah. And it's like you as a person in like developed country x probably don't know what this is like. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the next slide it's like all of the cryptocurrencies and how much they've lost their value and it's like actually now you do know what it's <laughs> like. Imagine that was like all of your savings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um anyway, so um so so <laughs> the, the the reason why they would want to purchase reserve shares is because um, in the long-term uh, let's say you get to I don't know let's just say you get to a trillion in in market cap for the reserve token um, and so then you have a trillion dollars worth of value stored in the vault okay in this very diversified portfolio that diversified portfolio again is not optimized for gains um, but uh, but we expect that it can be designed in such a way where it earns some small return per year. Maybe it's like three or 4%, right? So it's kind of operating um, like, uh, I don't know, like an endowment where you wanna never actually have a drawdown on the principal, uh, but still have some amount of return. Um, well, that three or 4% isn't a very substantial return if you think about it in you know, as a percentage of that, of that capital of, of, of a trillion but if the reserve share purchasers um, can, uh, can do work in the system to earn that capital. So if that, if that appreciation ends up being available as capital to pay the reserve shareholders to do work in the system, um, then at proportional to how much they had to pay to buy the reserve shares, which might only be like 10 billion, um, that three to 4% per year is a huge amount of money. And so essentially, um, Uh, You know, again, I have to be careful about how I describe this I don't want to promise profits to people like (laughs) the the way that this actually plays out is uncertain, etc but essentially uh, that means that um, It ends up being we think a good financial deal Um, and we'll over the course of time We'll publish more and more detail and more and more analysis about this and people can think through the the math specifically Um, but for the sake of this description um, uh, you know essentially uh, in the world where the thing scales up People can earn a substantial return. That's why they'd be willing to buy the reserve shares. Um, and so, what that's doing is basically um, it's basically making it so that uh, the you know the the stablecoin holders um, that ultimately contribute the vast majority of that capital that goes into the vault, in exchange for them just sort of getting stability and not profiting off of the appreciation of those assets. Um, we create this other asset class that is valuable today that you can speculate on that you can purchase and, and have a share of those future earnings um, Which allows us to raise that extra capital and have an overcapitalized vault mm-hmm. Which allows us to then stabilize the stable coin starting from day one in a way that we think is really safe um, and so uh, We think that's like a nice symbiotic relationship between the sort of like share token holders and the stable token holders in the system hmm. and so then Bringing this all together, what this means is that the direct way that the stablecoin is stabilized is just like, uh, you know, sort of like a currency board um, of a small country would do. Where if the price of the stablecoin goes below the pegged price of one dollar, let's say it's at ninety-five cents, um, anyone can go buy that that stablecoin for ninety-five cents and go trade it for one dollar worth of value from the vault. Um, you know, $1 worth of those tokens, which they can then go redeem for something else if they want to, or they can just hold those tokens. And that arbitrage opportunity, that risk-free profit, uh, means that the peg is maintained like nice and steady. Now, like I said before, you can't say for sure that the value won't go below 100%, right? So even if we're holding, you know, 100% true USDA, 100% tokenized gold and 100% ether, ether could crash, and TrueUSD could get shut down, and Digix could get shut down, like all at once, yep. or something. Let let's let's say let's say that I don't know. Uh, to make a good example, let's say that the two asset-backed tokens get shut down at the same time, even though they're from different places, and then uh, the the price of Ether goes down thirty percent. So now you have seventy percent backing instead of three hundred percent backing. In that scenario, like that, that's a bad scenario. We don't like that scenario. Um, we think the right thing to do is to allow people to redeem their their reserve tokens for 70 cents on the dollar Mm -hmm. so they can't redeem them for a dollar worth of value because if they could then that money could run out and 30 percent of people could be left holding a token that isn't backed and maybe goes to zero Mm -hmm. um and that would create a run on the bank dynamic yeah. yeah sure and so so we think that the right way to do this is to um is to allow people to redeem, but only to allow them to redeem. Like basically, the way you can think about this is the peg is actually a very narrow band in our yep. in our protocol. The band expands yep. at this point, including in the downward direction, um, and so we think that that makes sense in this context because um, you know if, if we have this diversified portfolio of different assets that has gone down in value, this current toy example maybe isn't perfect for that, but it's it's good enough. Um, let's say, you know, you do have gold and a bunch of different other assets, you have bonds and so on, and they've all gone down financially in value. And maybe some of them have uh, defaulted in expectation. Those assets will reappreciate. So if you look at even like major financial crises, yeah, lots of assets will totally crash in value. And then a few years later they've rebounded and, and even appreciated. You're there.
0: just trying to put the bumpers. Bumpers on the lane so that basically, when you start getting, you know, long or if and when you start getting long tail events, you have some sort of negative feedback mechanism that can basically uh, maintain stability. Well, and, so the, and so the thing is, the, run of the, bank.
1: The, the, the thing here is, we don't, I, I don't know if we have a negative feedback mechanism, but the way we sort of designed it, it's not of, what that expansion demand sort of isn't is. a feedback me- mechanism. Okay. So, so the 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 problem with the so how how
0: is I'm curious how is the expansion of that band or you know basically if you have seventy percent um, reserves and basically only it's redeemable for seventy cents on the dollar like that dynamic interaction there or that change in the exchange um, expectations uh, I guess that's kind of what I'm referring to when I like, okay th- that's, that's what strikes me as a negative feedback mechanism in the system.
1: So yeah, so the way I think about it um, that. Um, by having it be that there's no run in the bank possibility, mm-hmm. or, or like we can't run out of collateral, um, we make it so that there isn't a scenario where one person redeeming makes it more desirable for the next to redeem and more desirable for the person after that to redeem and yep. so on, which is kind of the thing I meant by feedback mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a feedback mechanism in the sense that the system does respond to it. You can kind of theorize about whether being able to redeem for 70 cents on the dollar would cause people to be more or less likely to redeem. Maybe they would wanna redeem because they thought the collateral was gonna go down further, yeah. that's one possibility. Um, or maybe they would not wanna redeem because they think the collateral is gonna reappreciate and they can actually get you mm-hmm. know, their full dollar worth later. But when I talk about there not being a particular kind of feedback mechanism, I'm talking about um, basically a situation where the fact that the the currency has been temporarily devalued doesn't imply anything uh, about the value of the collateral Right because if the collateral is like gold and bonds and so on those get their value completely independently of this particular currency system that we're operating. Yeah um, and so the expectation about what's going to happen to those the value of those collateral types in the future just has to do with these external markets that have nothing to do with the reserve system. Yeah. Whereas with the decentralized internal collateral, like the senior shares idea I described, or the derivatives of that idea, like uh, the basis protocol or the terror protocol, um, the secondary tokens in the system, um, it starts to look like they're gonna be less valuable if the peg has broken. So if the right. peg breaks, that's the sort of thing where it's like, oh, people might leave this system Therefore, the secondary tokens that are kind of like, you know, sort of promises of future value in the case of growth or in the case of spending, um, maybe aren't worth as much as we thought. And so you can have this negative cascade in confidence. Yep. Um, but we think that in our case, it's actually okay to temporarily devalue the currency because... Um, because there's an easy way for the market to come to consensus about the fact that it will it will actually return in the longer term because those assets will appreciate. Yeah. Later, Assuming the non-correlation of the assets and the rate right. the monetary devaluation. Yep, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's basically how it works. Let me see if I'm missing any parts that your viewers might want to know about. Um, So, okay, I promised that I would talk about what I thought was the biggest challenge with this. Okay. Um, So I think the biggest challenge with any decentralized external collateral backed stablecoin Mm -hmm. is um, essentially raising the collateral. Like, how is it that you actually build a system that incentivizes people to continue contributing enough collateral for that system to scale? Let's say we're at like 300% backing and, and early on, you know, we get to like a billion in market cap in a stable coin that means three billion dollars worth of collateral total two billion of that has to come from the, the some other source than the sale of stable coins um, and so can you actually incentivize people to contribute that collateral
0: mm-hmm.
1: we um, we know of two mechanisms for doing that one is the one i've just described where essentially you're selling fractional portions of some future cash flow um, In our case it's probably the case that the token holders will have to do some work to get access to that cash so you have to hold the token and also do some work which is going to be in terms of of voting responsibilities Mm -hmm. Um, and then another way of doing it is um, the sort of collateralized debt approach um, which which is the way that maker does it which is like a really clever idea where people uh, it, it's too complicated to describe the whole maker system right now. So yeah. for people who understand the maker system, you'll know what I mean by, you know, people can lock up collateral. Well, yeah, and you guys just, uh, shout out to your own writing from your team, you guys have a,
0: a whole analysis of the, the Maker now Yeah. On, on your Medium page, right?
1: Yep, yep, yeah, you can find that by going to reserve.org and clicking on the blog. Um, it's the longest piece we've taken the time to write because, I mean, frankly, because we think maker is the most credible project in the space um, uh, along with us, we think that we have a good way of doing it, and so we spent a long time thinking about um, that way of doing it, and sort of decided to publish all of our detailed thoughts about it. Um, and so, essentially, in, in in their system, people are incentivized to lock up collateral in the system in order to issue a stablecoin to themselves. That's kind of a loan where they have to pay back that loan um, in order to get their collateral out, and one major use case of this is then going and selling that stable coin for more of the asset type that they locked up. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a way of allowing people to take a margin-long position on whatever that asset is. And there could be other reasons why people want to take collateralized loans, um, but that seems like the biggest use case. Um, and so then the question for both of our approaches is, um, can, will demand for, uh, for either in our case, purchasing the, that secondary token, or in their case, locking up collateral um, to go budget long or take a loan for some other reason, will that demand match the demand for stablecoins? Where if the demand is um, lower than the demand for stablecoins, it could be that this produces a system which is like nice and stable in terms of the value of the stablecoin, but you can't actually scale the number of stablecoins up mm-hmm. um, sufficiently. And the reason why we picked this approach instead of the collateralized debt approach is that um, we wanted uh, an approach where the more demand for stable coins there was, the more in expectation demand there would be for purchasing that secondary token or or doing whatever the action is to lock up the collateral. So we think that you know the more we grow in market cap, um, the more people can see okay this could be very big, this could be a good financial deal and so the more they would be apt to go and be be willing to purchase that secondary token to further capitalize the system to allow us to grow more. So we want that to be a positive feedback loop as opposed to sort of two demand curves that are more independent, which is what we think is the case in the collateralized debt model. And that's like, we we think that Maker has like a really cool design. We think it's probably gonna be stable for the most part. We see some scenarios will be like more volatile. And then the concern is just, can it actually scale? Is there gonna be, um, sufficient demand that happens to match the demand for savings. So, so there's a lot there, yeah. a lot to unpack. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, I
0: think you know I, I can sit here talking to you for quite a bit longer about this stuff. But you got to go. Um, is there anything in terms of uh, in terms of how you'd like people to interact with uh, with your content? Are you guys you know where can they find out more about this model? I mean, I know maybe right now you haven't fully explained it in writing online, but yeah. Um, Aside from this podcast, obviously there
1: might be places you're going to be publishing more about it. What's the best place to find out about Reserve? We're going to be putting uh, talks on our website once the videos are processed and so on. We'll be publishing the description of the protocol pretty soon. Um, we just we wanted to make sure that uh, a lot of the details were ironed out before putting it out so that there wouldn't be confusion about the sort of different iterations. Um, but that should be happening soon. So check out reserve.org um, and um, you know, if you, if you found this interesting enough to listen through this entire conversation, um, then you should consider reaching out to us and talking to us um, about working on the project. Um, we are we're recruiting people in the Bay Area and also around the world, um, and you know, there, there's so much to do for a project like this to really make it work. Um, and right now, we're kind of acting like a company, um, sort of doing it all. In a pretty like coordinated and centralized way. Over the course of time, of course, for this to really thrive, um, we need many people around the world to take ownership of different parts of the project. Um, and so we're especially looking for super-driven founder types, people who want to own their own domain and do something that you know no one's in control of them and they're just making something happen in some other part of the world. Um, and you know, and when it comes to um, you know. Uh, not necessarily just technologically implementing this, but actually bringing it to the parts of the world that need it the most. Um, we're not the experts. Like, you know, we, like I said earlier in the conversation, we've started to travel around to different parts of the world and try to understand the situation on the ground, but um, we really want to connect with people who sort of viscerally feel the issues with currency in their, in their jurisdiction um, and, um, and can help us bring it to those people. Cool, cool. It sounds like
0: there's a a lot of work to be done, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to match with a lot of the uh, intelligent people out there who are interested in in this space. Uh, I know as somebody who is extremely passionate about seeing the positive seeds of innovation emerge from this kind of explosion of exploration that's happened across the past couple years in the cryptocurrency space or the, the decentralization space, as opposed to all of the grifting and all of the scamming and all of all of that that's been kind of overwhelming the narrative and the rhetoric it's really refreshing and it's good to see that there are people out there like you and your team who are giving a lot of this thought and who are doing so with a mind towards the the great burden of responsibility that also comes along with it and have spent the time uh, thinking through all of these extenuating circumstances and and have a model that uh, that you feel comfortable bringing to the table now uh, that could that could really help to, I think, uh, help to bring not only stability, but also uh, to realign perceptions of the potential in this space with the, the underlying reality. So thank you for doing that, and thank yep. you for being here today, Evan. Yep. Yeah. thanks for having me.